Welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. I'm going to be joined very shortly by my two co-hosts, Andy Liu and Tammy Kim. We have a guest today, our first guest actually, uh, on this podcast ever. Her name is Victoria Kim. She is a reporter for the Los Angeles Times, and she is going to talk to us about the Korean elections, which were held last week. They had record turnout, really, I think it was the highest turnout in the last 20 years, and she is, Victoria is going to give us a little bit of insight on how they did this, you know, during a time of coronavirus and what lessons we here in the United States might take from it, especially those of us who are a little bit nervous about the prospect of holding an election in November. Um, I wanted to tell you a little bit about how to subscribe to our podcast. If you found this through the Apple app, then I imagine that you know that we are on iTunes, that you can subscribe this way. But the best way that you could help us is to go to Substack uh, and time to say goodbye.substack.com. You can find the podcast there, but more importantly, you can sign up for our email uh, list in which we will not only send you the podcast, but we will send you written updates uh, you know, and, and all sorts of good stuff. It's the best way to keep track of the show. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, it is TTSGPod, um, at TTSGPod. All right, let's go. All right, how are you guys doing this week? I feel like we haven't talked about how we all wake up every day thinking we have coronavirus, and that is a constant terror on our life. But other than that, it's pretty good. (laughs) I don't think that at all. Really? That's, that's very strange. Yeah. We, I've never thought that. There's never been a morning. Really? There's never been a morning well, I've woken J- up. Jay, you thought, won. Oh no, I have coronavirus. <laughs> well, yeah. You don't. You don't have it. <laughs> no, I. I definitely don't. I don't want it. There was a. There was a period right at the beginning where I thought, um, you know, how much money would I be willing to pay to get it in a non-fatal form that I wouldn't transmit to anybody else, just so that I would be immune. And um, I'm not. I did come upon a number that you know. I, won't I don't know I thought like five thousand dollars or something <laughs> okay. like that um but uh I I I definitely don't want it it seems like it is a brutal brutal two weeks yeah. that people generally go through um if they do start to show symptoms but yeah I don't know Andy why are you saying that you you wake up every single morning think you have coronavirus like do you wake up coughing or something like that uh yeah like when i have a sore throat uh one time i i had some burnt food and like my taste buds were kind of weird for a few hours and i thought that was the beginning uh even when i'm outside i cough because i have like uh something in my throat and i want to tell people like it's not it's not a dry cough it's a it's a wet cough it's so reassuring to the public uh, all right so let's uh let's let's get started with yeah. our with our show here. And there are a few things that we wanted to talk about before we bring on our guest, Victoria Kim. The first thing is a story that is getting a lot of publicity. And I think that there are a few reasons why it's getting publicity and those reasons itself uh, themselves are interesting. But it's a question about uh, an African immigrant population in Guangzhou, some of the discrimination that they've started reporting in their area of town, which is called Little Africa. Like these incidents sound you know, from the news reports, they sound horrific. It's being chased out of restaurants. It's having signs on doors saying, don't come inside. Uh, people are being evicted from their apartments. Um, and all of this is under the idea that they are going to be bringing coronavirus into Guangzhou. Um, Andy, is this, is this uh, like, can, can you tell us a little bit about this, this African 
immigrant community in Guangzhou, like, you know, uh, and like what they're doing there and, and how long they've been there. There's a lot of ways, I think, that we should think about the story in terms of the larger, broader dynamics that this is a, there's a, at least a 20, 20, 30 year history that led up to all this. Um, and so we can't just say because of the pandemic, suddenly Chinese people became racist um, against these African, mostly merchants or sort of small time uh, merchants in the city. Uh, but I think the most direct um, connection is that uh, the Chinese state, Chinese companies have gradually uh, increased their investment into uh, African countries. Those are primarily West African countries uh, that are winding up, uh, West African uh, diaspora that wind up in Guangzhou, countries like Egypt, Mali, Nigeria, Congo. Um, and so as there have been greater Chinese trade and investment with Africa, they've also uh, kind of liberalized uh, migration standards, I guess, to allow a lot more of them to come to China and Guangzhou in particular. Guangzhou is important because um, the southern Chinese region, the Pearl River Delta spanning from Hong Kong to the Guangdong province, that's the um, manufacturing export hub capital of China. Uh, now, it's become a little bit more dispersed in recent years, but for a long time, this was where, you know, famously, right, this is where Apple products are made. Uh, the blue jean capital of the world is in this province. Uh, toys, computers, radios, anything you can think of that was made in China, quote unquote, um, was probably from Guangdong province. Are, are large industrial cities in, in southern China, like these manufacturing cities that make things like Apple products, are, are they generally international in any sort of way? Like, uh, is it surprising to find pockets of, of people from all sorts of different countries there? Uh, so that's a good question. The relationship is pretty complex. So the, most of the manufacturing does not take place in Guangzhou, just like it doesn't take place in Hong Kong or Shanghai, right? It's really these sort of second, third tier cities that are scattered all around the province mm -hmm. that are kind of rural. And uh, that's where they all kind of pack all the sort of rural Chinese workers come to get jobs. So Guangzhou would be sort of the hub, right? The sort of the place where all the business deals get done. And yeah, so that would make a lot, it would make a lot more sense then that there would be a lot more international uh, business people, banks, um, tech companies, perhaps that wind up in those cities. What 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 are these uh, what are these African populations doing in 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 Guangzhou? The reason they're there is precisely because Guangdong Province is where all these sort of little knickknacks, little little uh, sort of light industry goods are made. So they specialize in um, kind of trafficking those goods, like uh, contracting buyers to make goods, and then they sell them overseas. So they've kind of found a niche as sort of middlemen, and that seems to be um, their niche, their, their role within this um, as kind of import-export. Um, and so as, and a lot of them also come to there for university study. Uh, I think they've liberalized educational um admissions. Uh, so the numbers, uh, we were kind of looking for specific numbers. Some estimates are as low as 15,000 in Little Africa, but some even over 100,000. There are no official statistics. But I guess uh, when you go to that part of town, it's very uh, distinct and obvious which part of town um, um, they kind of live in. Uh, so you're, you're saying that um, these things have a very, that the history is not so short. You know, it's not like coronavirus came to China or, you know, started in China, whatever, and that suddenly people started looking around for people to blame, and then it dawned upon them that they could blame these African immigrants, right? So, like, what, what is some of the, the history here uh, between African populations and China and how they're treated? Because 
you know, I think that is a context that our listeners, or at least I, at least, you know, as an individual would like to know, because um, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, having as somebody who is a, I think somewhat curious person, you know, maybe middle curious, but knows and knows probably an okay amount about Asia and China. I will say that I was, I was somewhat surprised that the, that the African immigrant population in the city was so large. Um, like how, how are, how is this African treat, uh, community seen? How are they treated? The, the thing to keep in mind, kind of like what you were saying, um, in our discussion last week in terms of anti-Asian racism was not caused by the pandemic. It's really just sharpening these existing tensions that already exist. Uh, so if you do some, uh, just looking around, there's already, there was already tensions between local residents um, in, in Guangzhou or uh, across China towards these African immigrants. Um, and what is that about? Is there like a specific grievance? Is there, is it just yeah. kind of like, you don't look like us or like, is it like, is it like in America, like a sort of like a almost a manufactured concern or a xenophobia, like you're going to, you're going to take our jobs. You're here to replace us. Uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, I don't think it really is the same. So uh, what I found, this is a quote from 2017. This is from uh, a higher up official. Uh, his name is Pan Qinglin. And uh, this quote is pretty striking. Um, he's, he lives in Beijing. He doesn't live in Guangzhou, but he kind of released this document calling for the ending of migration. He says, black brothers often travel in droves. <laughs> brothers? Uh, he uses the know, word yeah. Black Yeah, but, but in, a, in a sort of like... Is, in he, sort of like, like, is he watching a very, like, Quentin Tarantino <laughs> movies or something like that? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> okay, okay, it's, uh, it's, like, it's, like, it's like comrade. Like comrade, like, right? Okay. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. All right. Shongdi, like, or siblings. <laughs> comrade meets exploitation. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not like, not like brother with an A. <laughs> that would be a good movie. All right. So, black brothers often travel in droves. They are out at night on the streets, nightclubs, and remote areas, they engage in drug trafficking, harassment of women, fighting, uh, which seriously disturbs law and order in Guangzhou. Africans have a high rate of AIDS and the Ebola virus that can be transmitted via body fluids. <laughs> Terrible. Um, yeah, so for yeah, them, no, it's that's th really racist. I mean, that's yeah, no. like a 10 out of 10 racist. Sure, uh, sure. Like, <laughs> it's like Steve King racist because it's... Right. I mean, Ebola and HIV is... For sure. I mean, oh, my God. Right, so this, yeah. this lets us know that you know, the sort of uh, racism in a time of plagues and pandemics is not exclusive to Western Europeans, right? Asians right. participate in as well. Uh, and in terms of like the specific stereotypes, they're different than the stereotypes of like, so let's say China taking all the jobs in America. These are yeah. stereotypes of they're like a drag in our society. They are, um, the, I mean, a lot of, from what I had read, a lot of the stereotypes on Chinese social media are like, uh, you know, they take our woman and then they like, they don't, they don't, um, they don't stick around like they're, uh, irresponsible, let's say. Um, so in a lot of ways, um, I don't know, I don't know exactly where they get the content of these stereotypes, but you can see how they could perhaps mirror a lot of the stereotypes in, in the U S. Well, I think what's striking about it too, is that like in Guangzhou isn't one of the, the special free trade zones, right? Whereas Shenzhen is. And African laborers aren't employed in the manufacturing sector. They're just sort of allowed in on, you know, either temporary visas or guest worker basis to do this sort of small time trading. So I'm wondering to what extent that plays in. And then, of course, with China's kind of imperial ambitions in Africa with the bases that it's trying to form there. Right. Um, there's sort of there's a problem with that, too, the way that they're seeing Africans. Yeah, I wonder if there's something to be said about how in China they really value manufacturing, industrialization mm -hmm. as their as their path up the ladder in the world. 
and they see Africans as not doing productive, quote unquote, productive labor of like manufacturing. They're doing the quote unquote unproductive parasitic right. labor of buying and selling, which is uh, kind of looked down upon in yeah. industrial countries, right? Um, they're they're petty merchants as opposed exactly. to like large corp- corporations. Well, and hasn't that been a complaint of a lot of the Africans who have sought out the jobs that Chinese industrialists have? have offered in, in Africa also for its construction projects, but that they've mostly employed Chinese workers there too. So on both continents, there's something going on with the sort of perception of African work. Yeah, I think I think a lot of this... So the other big picture thing I think that's worth noting is that uh, in the U.S.-Chinese context, we've been, I think some people have been speculating, is this the end of U.S.-Chinese, you know, decoupling? Is this the mm-hmm. end of U.S.-Chinese economic relations? And I guess... The open question, which we don't know, is could this signal a change in the direction of the last 20 years of China increasingly investing in the post-colonial African, mm-hmm. South Asian, uh, Middle East world? Um, uh, you know, there there's some, Tammy, you, you had found earlier some sort of, uh, I think, um, a head of state uh, kind of tweeting out like, no, it's all, it's all good. Like, we don't want to ruin this relationship between... Um, China and I believe Nigeria was the country, mm-hmm. uh, but I think the there is a question of does is this pandemic going to kind of ramp up these divisions and these uh, tensions such that international co- economic and political ties might be fraying? Yeah, yeah, that that's really the it's really the question that I think most people who are um, you know outside of the things that are sort of emotional either tied up in identity or tied up in culture, the greater driver of how those things will go is obviously going to be economic. And I just have no idea at this point. I don't think anyone really does because I've actually, you know, I've asked a lot of people who would know better than me um, about whether or not they think, for example, Apple is going to stop making iPhones in China, you know, or whether or not Nike is like these big American firms that do all uh, and not just like, you know, that they're the only drivers of American business, but very, very high profile companies that do a lot of business in China. Let's even say like the NBA, Andy, you know, like what, how is their relationship going to change with with China after this? It was already fraught with the, especially with the NBA after this Daryl Morey thing, you know, last uh, last summer. Um, and how does how does this change everything, um, especially when, you know, every single day it seems like there's some new you know, mainstream news article about, did China manufacture this? You know, did this uh, escape from a lab? Uh, you know, China covered this up and, you know, here's the dead, the dead, uh, the dead doctor um, who was trying to be yeah. a whistleblower. And then this person was disappeared. There are six days that passed, you know, that China could have told the world, but they didn't. Like all, all these stories keep coming out. And I, I do think that the public sentiment is essentially if you ask any random person, no matter how liberal, you know, do you think China is completely faultless for this? I'm almost positive 95% of them would say no, you know, that they, they, they would think that China had bore some responsibility for this. So uh, well, it'll be interesting to see how it goes forward. Back back in March, the last polling I saw was the majority of people blamed China above Donald Trump in the United States. Um, and then this isn't surprising, but among Donald Trump voters, there's something like 2% blamed Trump and like 95% blamed China. So um, it's yeah. that's that was back in March. I don't know what it's like now, but I, the other thing is we don't have to get into um, partisan politics. But it seems like Biden, the Biden campaign, is also going to yeah, try to leverage China. Sure. So it's just going to be a, a competition over who can uh, attack China the most this this fall. We can look forward to this. I mean, Andy, <laughs> yeah. 
As a historian of China, what do you think about this kind of emphasis on this obsession with this Chinese supply chain that Jay was already was just talking about? Because wasn't there already a move out of China being the quote unquote workshop of the world and that production going to Southeast Asia because of wages? Yeah, that was the um, I mean, that's been something to monitor. I think I don't think that's going to. So I agree with Jay. I don't think political will is going to suddenly change all of this. I think it has to be, um, as long as it's much cheaper to make things in China and high quality things in China, I can't imagine um, that changing. There's just so much that gets made in China. Yeah. Um, you know, in Southeast Asia, you take all of Southeast Asia, the population is still a fraction yeah. uh, of, of <laughs> totally. China, right? Yeah. These conversations that people have like, oh, we're going to just move to Bangladesh or we're going to move to Vietnam. Vietnam. And I'm like, look, <laughs> you can make... Uh, everything in these factories in China, you can make it cheaply, you can make it quickly, and you know that the quality is going to be exactly what you thought the quality was going to be last time. In a time of economic crisis, when your company is struggling, the last thing that you're going to do is move to Bangladesh, navigate an entire new political system, train a new workforce, build new factories, and then not know what the thing that's going to come at the end of the, at the, end of the conveyor belt is going to be, you know? You know, Andy, one thing that, uh, and Tammy as well, one thing that I was wondering is if uh, if you feel like, is there, is there an attempt for China here to try and cast itself as a multicultural country? You know, now I know the reality is is definitely not that, but is that a desire that they hold at all? And, you know, as a country modernizes, as a country industrializes, as a country reaches out to other countries in either an imperialistic sense or even a diplomatic sense that that perhaps they want their country to at least on the surface seem more multicultural in the way that the United States might make gestures towards that so the short answer is no China does not really have those ambitions to be a nation of immigrants or melting pot like the United States does uh, and that's probably true of most countries around the world especially ones that can trace their history back to a long uh, period of time, you know, over a thousand years, let's say, there's a sense of uh, kind of ethnic uh, ethnic identity as a foundation. <clears throat> it's really the kind of white settler states of places like the U.S., Australia, Canada, that might have this idea of a melting pot. So they're the, they're really the exception. The rural typically is uh, we are a people that have long roots and we belong here. Now that said, there's a few exceptions that are probably worth discussing. Um, the first is that. Um, the People's Republic of China, the Communist Party, established this notion that they are a multi-ethnic state uh, on the premise that over 90% of people in China are categorized as Han Chinese. But then you have all these other quote-unquote minority groups that were predominantly in Western China, Southwest China, Northwest China. Uh, and the idea, the goal of the CCP was to promote some sort of ethnic solidarity amongst all these people, but we kind of, if you've been following the headlines with Tibet and most recently Xinjiang and the Uyghurs, we know that that, uh, that, that premise is pretty uh, malleable and can be kind of tossed aside for expedient reasons. Um, and and uh, I think what we see in Xinjiang today, for instance, is a sort of strong Han Chinese backlash against people who are perceived as different than them, the, the Uyghurs of Xinjiang. The other um, exception, I guess, would be in the coastal cities, places like Shanghai, have been internationalized for better or for worse, uh, kind of by force since the 19th century with the with colonialism, and Guangzhou and Beijing and some of these other treaty ports, by necessity they have I think adopted an attitude of tolerating limited amounts of people from around the world, uh, 
because they are all kind of bound together by this common goal of making money, doing business with each other. But I think the majority of the people in China, the everyday Chinese person, um, still believes China is for Chinese Han Chinese people. Uh, and if anything, it's the government or elite, powerful um, business people who would espouse some notion of cosmopolitanism uh, in the interests of you know globalization and, and things like that. Seems to me the answer to that is a definitive no. I mean, modern China has basically had a Soviet-style nations policy where they can acknowledge the existence of certain ethnic minority groups, like the Uyghurs or people in Inner Mongolia, but they give them a sort of cultural fetish status where they are costumed curiosities as opposed to sort of integrated people in in their polity. And, you know, I think in the case of Africans, that is certainly a group that the Chinese government is not interested in integrating. Andy, one more thing, because I wanted to read you um, a quote from The New Yorker in 2009. And I think it's it gets at the heart of, you know, some of the way that this stuff is discussed, because I think... Uh, I don't know when I read that when I read about the treatment of African immigrants or African workers in China. It, I was, you know, I was disgusted and saddened, but I didn't. I wasn't surprised that this was happening, you know. And and but this is this is a quote from uh, New Yorker story, which is: racial typologies in China are rooted in traditional Chinese thought. In the fourth century BC, the Zuo Zhuan is that am I pronouncing that correctly? Zuo uh, Zhuan. Okay. <laughs> a founding historical text warned, if he is not of our race, he is sure to have a different mind. Fair skin indicated intelligence and beauty. The princess in the Xijing, China's earliest collection of poems, had fingers, quote, like the blades of the young white grass. <laughs> the young white grass, okay. And skin, quote, like congealed ointment. That is, sounds Sexy. disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> Peasants who toiled in the sun were the, quote, black-headed people, as uh, Frank Dehotter writes in The Discourse of Race in Modern China, dark-skinned to aim to signify inferiority. Chinese writers, la uh, Chinese writers likened Africa to Hundun, a folkloric uh, primeval chaos. Um, what, what, what do you think about reading about this? Because, you know, I, I would say that, you know, the, it's... It strikes me as being a big cultural explanation. Like we talked about this last week too, right? How the, outs the rest of the world tends to think something... The news in Asia can be explained through Confucianism. Um, and when in reality, it probably has something to do with the last 100, 200 years. This would be like your typical um, story of some sort of uh, like racial discrimination in the United States. And the, and the author starts talking about the Greeks and how the Greeks felt about you know, the Egyptians uh, 3,000 years ago. <laughs> yeah. like, that doesn't happen, right? Um, the and I think the distinction among academics, or the discussion that I think is most persuasive, is that race as a concept is a relatively modern concept dating back to the 19th century, and has everything to do with legitimizing systems of labor, capitalist the way the capitalist order yeah. functioned, right? Um, now that doesn't now of course there has always been some notion of xenophobia of difference. That people with dark hair are like this, people with light skin are like that. Uh, that is obviously very old. But if you start with that as your mode of explanation, you just you just kind of give up. You're just kind of shrugging your shoulders mm -hmm. at trying to explain what yeah. happened, what is happening today. Like why this place here? Why this group? Why not that group? Why this time in history? Um, it's really it has no expl explanatory value whatsoever. Mm -hmm. in my I also feel like it's like in some ways it's a misdiagnosis, right? Like. Um, or at least there's like a there's sort of a 
that the there's no separation between two different things that are being discussed now. When they are discussing Africans specifically, I believe that that is about Africans. This stuff about dark skin is generally inner, like it's about different ethnic groups within the same country who to a Western person would seem exactly like they were, uh, you know, like they were both Chinese for uh, in Korea, for example, you know, like uh, that, that this is also true. You know, it's also true in the Philippines. It's true in most countries Mm -hmm. in Asia that people with fairer skin are seen as more beautiful and people undergo all sorts of face bleaching stuff that, you know, is painful and and shameful and, you know, should not exist in many ways. But, you know, it it is, it's more to try and delineate like things like, do you have Mongolian blood in you, you know? And like that in (laughs) itself is a crazy type of of eugenic, disgusting like thing. But it's really just like, are you the scholar class or the, or the peasant class? Tammy, do your, do your parents obsess about this? Yeah, but my mom's super dark. They used to call her Viet Cong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. my, so we're all cursed. my sister and my parents are both rel- my sister my parents are both relatively fair, and my sister and I I don't know why, but maybe it's like from dinner by because we grew up in North Carolina or something like that and ran around outside <laughs> all the time, super dark, yeah. you know, and that is. Uh, for a while, every time we visited our uh, aunts in Korea, it would be like the only thing they talked about, you know, <laughs> yeah. and they use all sorts of racist things that I will, you know, comparing us all sorts of other racist things that I won't <laughs> say right now. But, um, you know, there's always a speculation that my sister and I were actually Filipino and that we had been like a- adopted <laughs> and stuff like that. But I think that what this, this piece in The New Yorker and why it's interesting, this quote is interesting to me is because it is a conflation of that right, which is within right. a group, and then feelings towards Africans, which I imagine are actually worse, you know, like more toxic, more xenophobic. <laughs> um, but what I think these authors do a lot of times, and look, I, I'm sure I've done it myself in pieces and in this sort of mechanism, is that you read back and then you just collect the little things that make sense, you know, and then you craft together a big cultural theory about it, and then it has to explain everything. And one of the things that I, I, you know, I wanted to ask you, um, Andy, and also you, Tammy, is just like, why do you think this works so much? Like, why is so much of the Western literature about Asia dominated by like big cultural ideas that that are, you know, so old, you know, or or so off? If you know anything about them, like, why why do we have this prevalence of this? I mean, I was just reading some cultural theory. I'm not really sure why. I guess the depression of being inside so much. But, um, you know, I think there is this notion that it's easier in a way than than trying to do the investigatory work or the sort of understanding of modern life in these countries, right? Like, it actually does take a fair amount of work to think, okay, what is it actually, what is the historical context of the now? And how do people there as moderns function? That in a way is harder than going to sort of I don't know, Google like translated texts from like 4,000 years ago and, you know, say something kind of sweeping that sounds very poetic and far away. Um, So that's, I mean, I think that's kind of just an easy sort of popular response that that a lot of commentators resort to. Which one is this? There's a lot lot of talk about Asian Americans in the media right now, right? (laughs) I feel like I'm introducing a Chris Rock. I I feel like I'm Chris Rock, you know, uh, (laughs) doing a transition to a new joke. (laughs) Like, A lot of Asian American talk going on right now. Um, 
<laughs> Who's more racist? Asian Americans? Oh, yeah. Oh, dude. Anyway, so this <laughs> the story about uh, hate crimes against Asian Americans, um, which is something that all, you know, obviously the three of us are thinking about, um, you know, continues to go on. I don't think it's spiked up. I don't think it's dropped. I don't I think it's sort of a constant hum where every couple of days I'll read an article in a major publication about this. Um, I don't think that there has been any sort of outside of, you know, horrific incident in Texas and, you know, one in Brooklyn hasn't been much like incredible violence. You know, there hasn't been something on the magnitude of a mosque burning, but, Mm -hmm. you know, it has been an opportunity for an entire conversation amongst people who are given the opportunity to have these conversations about what being Asian American means, right? Um, Tammy, like, what, what, what do you make about all this? Like, what, what, like, how have you processed this sort of moment where people are talking about Asian Americanness? Yeah, we discussed this a little bit last week in regards to the Andrew Yang op-ed, but I feel like some of the takes on his take are somehow worse, or there's a constant kind of obsession, navel-gazing kind of flavor to some of these reflections, and I'm not entirely sure what to do with them. Um, Andy had alerted us to a comment Trump made the other day where he said, quote, of Pelosi, she wanted everyone to pack into Chinatown long after I closed the border to China, uh, referring to Pelosi's comment in late February to encourage people to eat in Chinatown. Um, You know, and I think the response to that being this is America. Chinatown is America, not China. You know, this that's the kind of like reflexive thing that I'm seeing going on a lot. And I don't like it. Why why don't you like it? Because I think that that's what most people would expect us to say. Sure. And that's fine. But I mean, that doesn't address what's actually going on or what is most important about this, which is that, you know, this is a geopolitical situation. Also, this is, you know, race is just being used by Trump to, you know, deflect from the actual crisis, which is a public health crisis, which is a geopolitical crisis. And I don't I feel solidarity with people who are workers, people who look like me but don't have American citizenship, people who are undocumented, people who will just identify, in fact, as Chinese who are here working in Chinatown. And I don't think by saying, oh, this is America, I'm American, that gets to any of that, that gets to the kind of solidarity aspect that I think is where we should be going. So I don't yeah, know. Do you remember when Barry Weiss? Uh, do you remember when Barry Weiss? Like it was one of her Lord. five first cancellations when she when uh, when a Asian Japanese American uh, figure skater like did some incredible jump and she was like, "Immigrants oh, yeah. will get the job done." <laughs> just a yeah. quote from Hamilton. Do you remember this? Yeah. And everyone, including Chrissy Teigen, like just piled on her, and it was like you know like an intense cancellation. <laughs> Um, it reminds me a little bit of that, you know, where yeah. it's this like assertion, like, no, we are American. Actually, she was born in in the you know, in California. Right. How dare you? And look, there's part of me that's just like it that it's like, yeah, you know, like uh, it's fucked up that people just think that we're all foreigners, you know. But at the sure. same time, um, I don't know. Like, I I think that that assertion is certainly, and I like I don't I hate this word. I don't want to use it, but it is certainly a privileged. Right, right. Uh, assertion to make, and it. But in the reason why it's important, why it's privileged, at least to me, is just because it's also exclusionary. You know, mm-hmm. like, like, what if she had not been born in the right. United States? You know, would. Uh, and then the other part of it with that instance, in in general, is I was just like, who cares? You know, 
like her parents are immigrants. Like yeah. it's fine. <laughs> She's just trying to be nice. <laughs> right. Well, it goes back to this uh, idea of how we grow up trying to shape ourselves uh, as not fobs, right? And 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 as you've mentioned, this is really a class thing. We don't want to be seen as mm-hmm. uh, the poor Asian. We want to be seen as the upperly mobile Asian. Um, I was I saw a tweet earlier this week. I won't name who tweeted it. It was just, it was a a good liberal but who was trying to, I guess, sound smart about um, the situation in Italy by pointing out that there's all these Chinese factories in Italy and perhaps suggesting that this is why Italy had corona in the first place. But everyone in the comments pointed out that Chinese workers in Italy are not jet setters. They're not flying back and forth Mm. between China and Italy all the time, right? Um, The person that they kind of think probably did bring it to Italy was like a kind of a millionaire's daughter, fashion designer person who, uh, you know, like, and, and, and so that I think thinking about that, the people in Chinatown in San Francisco are not going back and forth between China and California. Uh, certainly not as much as like the Silicon Valley executives. Yeah. Right. Or the business yeah, or executives. like students at UC Berkeley or Stanford or any of the places oh, around right. there. Yeah. Right. Um, and certainly somebody who is going to go to like Wuhan is, you know, there's just as much chance that it's going to be a executive at a, you know, like somewhere who needs to make, as you put it, a widget, you know, and he's going to fly there to make sure that it goes well, or maybe like an advertising executive who wants to go there to, you know, try and figure out, you know, how to tell the story of their brand or something like that. Right. Like all all those things um, are, are going to, are much more likely to be transmission. Um, so, so, okay, so, well, just to finish that ahead. thought, so Trump is basically targeting Chinatown because they're the easiest target as uh, recent immigrant working class, non-English speaking, or sort of second language English speaking immigrants. Uh, and the and the people who are saying that's Chinatown is not China, right? They're kind of agreeing with that t- stereotype. They're just kind of drawing the line a little bit somewhere else, right? But they're still sort of saying people on the other side of yeah. this line, real China they do deserve the demonization. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And the real thing, the other weird irony of it is that like, you know, what they should say is that like, well, no Chinese people live in San Francisco's Chinatown. It's like a tourist stop, you know, like that's about it. It's like, I think there's four people who, <laughs> <laughs> and they're all like 96 years old and, you know, they, they're all born in the United States. But um, one of the interesting pieces that came out, I think, around all this is like George Takai, who has become like, you know, our sort of grandfather of of Asian American takes, right? And <laughs> maybe the most beloved Asian American, uh, now that Andrew Yang has been mega canceled, uh, came out and he did an interview and he did it with Kathy Park Hong and Erica Lee, who's both of whose work I, I respect and who I think are both good scholars and writers. But George Takai uh, in this interview said, Asian Americans are American. Certain segments of the Asian American community have been here since the 1840s. We are many generations here. We are Americans. And as a matter of fact, Asian Americans are part of the frontline doctors, nurses, researchers looking for a cure. We are a part of America, and we are still seen in the context of our ancestral land. My grandparents came from Japan. Um, (laughs) Tammy, why'd you groan there? Well, I groaned at the part where it said, we're part of the frontline doctors, nurses, researchers looking for a cure um, as, as uh, though well, that's somehow necessary to like redeem us. And it kind of plugs into, you know, this sort of very longstanding rhetoric of, oh, well, you need to, I mean, we need to 
he's kind of like undermining his own argument in the sense that he's saying, oh, we're so American and we're part of this country. And yet he still needs to say something that kind of like redeems our identity and our utility in this moment to the rest of the population. It's bizarre. Yeah, he's like, like this, this interview, I think, was in some ways a response to Andrew Yang. And yet, yeah. like we said, like, uh, the irony of it is that when people are shouting down Andrew Yang, 90% of them just say the same thing that Andrew Yang said, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, we're doctors, you know, we're gonna save you, okay. you know, Let, please don't hate crime us, you know, like, um, and I, that the the thing that I thought I wanted to ask you about, Andy, about this, because I think it is an interesting thing about history, which is that, like, what what do you think about this particular instance of, ev- of evoking history? You know, like, because it is essentially he is making a historical argument mm-hmm. as well. He's saying that we have been here long enough to feel American. You know, we have been here long enough where you should consider us American. Um yeah, like what? What is your sense of that? I think he's. I think he's inventing a continuity that doesn't exist, right? Like the waves of immigrants that are coming here at different moments. Uh, it's worthwhile to think of them together as a kind of a mixture. But the Japanese workers who are coming to work on sugarcane fields or f- work as farmers in the early 19th century—they're different than the you know, the Taiwanese and the Korean grad students who are entering Texas A&M in the 60s and 70s, right? <laughs> Um, and, and they're different than the only child, um, you know, only children of rich mainland Chinese families that have been coming since the 90s. Uh, I, I mean, I don't I'm not the kind of person to say, like, we should never think about these together. Asian Americanness is a coherent history that's worth telling. But mm-hmm. uh, I think to I don't I think it's kind of I think it's a little uh, it's a little naive to say something like. Um, we we here should feel um, it's it, if you go back to Asia and you said something like the three of us have something in common with the Japanese immigrants from the 1840s people in Asia would kind of look at you crazy right <laughs> yeah I would look at you crazy you know I mean what do you mean like the people who are like killing and colonizing like my great 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 grandparents <laughs> like, like what, what do we have in common outside of that yeah, it's a very strange comment to me, but it's one, again, that I see quite a bit, which is just like, all right, I agree with you that, uh, and I think it's, I don't even think it's a question of agree or disagree. Like, it's just like fact that you cannot, that Asian, how many, I, I guess the way that I would ask is just like, how many Asian Americans do you know whose family have been here since the 19th century? You know, I know zero. zero. Like I know George Takai. My, <laughs> that's, that's, my, par- my partner's family is Hawaiian it. Japanese, so they they're turn of okay. the century. Okay. Uh, but like you know, here in the continental United States, yeah. at least you know I I know yeah. almost none. You know, and how many how many Asian Americans do you know, or what percentage of Asian Americans do you know, families came after the 1965 Immigration yeah. Act? I mean, for me, it's like a hundred percent. You know, and so but that's our that's our idea, wave. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And but it is also by far the biggest wave yeah. you know it is the vast vast majority of asian americans and so to define this thing through history again and to sort of put a start date at the beginning that nobody really can identify with you know that is such a small portion of the population it almost is saying like look we've been speaking english for this long you know it's almost like look we've been part of this country for this long and i think that in terms of trying to build an identity together to try and stitch those two things together by using the exa- the exception Mm. and also the one that sounds the best to be the defining tactic uh the defining trait of it all 
is actually counterproductive, you know, because uh, George Takai, I'm sure that if somebody is racist, they can be like, yeah, I love George Takai, <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> I just don't like this dude delivering this food is going to give you coronavirus. <laughs> he doesn't speak English. We have a guest today. Uh, it is Victoria Kim. She is a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. And what we wanted to talk to Victoria about were the elections that were held in Korea. Now, you know, we are interested in that because they happened as well. But we are also interested in it because we are going to be having an election here in November, I think, you know, uh, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> and a lot of the questions that are being asked are, how are we going to do this? You know, and we had this debacle in Wisconsin recently. Um, where a court decided that that they had to go on, even though there's you know great risk for the people who are going to be voting there. Um, we've had restrictions on mail-in votes. And so we wanted to talk about the Korean elections both as a way to discuss them as something that has happened in you know geopolitically, but we also wanted to talk about them just so that we could figure out how Korea actually uh, did this. So Victoria, uh, welcome to our show. Hi. Good to good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, where where are you right now? I am in Seoul, South Korea, in my apartment. Victoria, maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about the safety protocol for the election, because I was very jealous of all the gloves that were there and hand sanitizer. We've completely run out here in the U.S. Well, so what happened this past Wednesday was the parliamentary elections. Um, there are three types of elections that happen in South Korea, the presidential election, which happens every five years, um, and then the parliamentary election and um, local elections. So this is with the equivalent of midterms in the U.S. It was to select um, the 300-seat parliament, um, and it was it was halfway through President Moon Jae-in's term. He was voted in in 2017 and has another two years to go in his term. Uh, what's the general like enthusiasm uh, about these parliamentary elections? Because you know, is it is it like the midterms here in the United States where uh, there isn't too much enthusiasm about it? That people care much more about the presidential election, or is this something that that is a big deal there? No doubt, uh, the presidential elections are much more you know in, in incite much more fervor here, just as in the U.S. But um, this is my first time experiencing the South Korean parliamentary elections, and it was pretty remarkable to see the turnout. Um, I was looking up the numbers. I actually covered the midterms in the U.S. in 2018. um, And the record turnout there was something like 53%, a turnout that everybody was really excited about. And the turnout here was was 66.2%. So was that expected? Was that were people expecting a high turnout? I mean, obviously, Korea's gotten a lot of attention as being sort of the gold standard bearer of how to deal with coronavirus. And we now have seen photos of people in cafes and, you know, people walking out on the streets and, you know, very, as most people listening to this will know that there was never a full lockdown, but, you know, things did get locked down. Uh, did, did people think that turnout was going to be low for this election? I don't think people knew quite what to expect. I think there was the general expectation that people would um, not be as enthusiastic to go to the polls because of the coronavirus um, but it's South Korea's first time holding an election uh, during an epidemic as well. So I, I don't know that people quite knew what to expect. Um, certainly, they weren't expecting this type of a turnout. Um, the first signs of it happened over the weekend because they did two days of early voting. Um, and part of that was to sort of reduce, every, uh, reduce the density of, of um, 
the voting public on voting day so they could spread out the voting over three days as opposed to on what one day um, and when and this was something that ha had happened in previous elections as well the um, early voting over the weekend um, and when I think a quarter of the electorate turned out during the two early voting days which was um, a huge increase from past year so that was the first sign that um, that it was going to be a, a big turnout like what what is what is what are what do the streets in in Seoul uh, look like right now? I mean, are they are they more deserted? Are are people still out? Like, if if you walked, let's say through a crowded area of of the city, like, would you think there's no way that we're going to be able to have an election if this if this many people are afraid to go outside? Things feel strangely normal here, strangely back to normal. There was um, the peak of South Korea's surge in case was cases was last late February. Um, and there was a couple of weeks there when it did feel a lot more deserted um, than normally in Seoul. Um, now, things largely feel back to normal. The subways are um, crowded. The um, restaurants and, and bars have people, um, especially Election Day, which is a public holiday here. There were a lot of people um, out enjoying the spring weather because they didn't have to work. Do you, do you think that there's a timing aspect of this where if this had had to have happened, let's say in like early March or something like that, that the turnout wouldn't have been as high or maybe it even would have been, uh, it would have been postponed? I think that that it would have been a very different election had it been held just a few weeks earlier. Um, the, the timing was really a, a big part of it because um, in the past couple of weeks, there have been... Um, about 20 or so a day of new infections. And that's such a big difference from late February when there was a, a day we had 900 new cases in, in one day. And it was looking scary for a while. Yeah, 900 here would be like, uh, everyone would just go back to. <laughs> it would just be like, it's over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think there have been, think there's been a lot of stuff. I think we got down to 10,000 a day. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, there are some days I would look at the number for... Um, deaths and it's it's kind of hard to distinguish what's the number of deaths and what's the number of new infections because what what the number of deaths is larger than the, the number of new infections here so what are the uh what, what were some of the measures that that south korea took to ensure people's safety during this uh during the election um so like i mentioned a part of it was the early voting where they had two days of early early voting to spread out um the voting um, on the day of, um, everybody was given hand sanitizer upon arrival, um, and they were given plastic disposable gloves to wear. Um, they, everybody's temperature was taken upon arrival, um, and if you had a fever or were showing any other symptoms, including coughing, there was a separate um, voting booth where you could go ahead and vote. Um, and if that separate voting booth would be sanitized after after each voter. Um, everybody so was... They had like a shame booth. Yeah. yeah, it was like they were being siphoned off, taken to a back room. Um, and uh, everybody was being required to line up um, one meter from one another, which is less than the social distancing requirement of two meters. So I don't know why yeah. that... Um, decision was made, so there were there was there were um, lines of tape on the floor to make sure that people lined up a meter from one another. I, I, one of the early voting um, stations that I went to, it didn't look quite as enforced, but um, 
So then, and then the thing is, we'll still have to wait a bit to see if this actually did work and if it was actually enough to not cause um, additional infections because of the um, lag between infection and symptom showing. But uh, for the most part, we're, we're, it certainly showed that people felt comfortable enough to come out to vote. Was there a big sort of panic or debate before the elections happened about whether or not this was going to lead to a new outbreak, whether or not it was going to kill people? Because you know, I think in the terms of like you know the emotion curves of countries going through uh, the coronavirus, I think right now here in the United States we are at a point where half of the people are like it's fake or you know it's not as big of a deal. The media is hyping it up, and then the other half are just like if you go outside and you go to farmers market. And you get uh, your CSA box, then you know you're going to be killing five people. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, like, how how do you even have an election? Like, like, were were people were people really worried about that? Like, was there a big push to maybe even delay it? Um, or, or were most people like, yeah, let's do this thing? I uh, I think for the vast majority of people were like, let's do this thing. And I, there were there were some calls for postponement but very earlier on and and you're right it's it's where south korea is on that curve it's on the you know we seem to have emerged um, largely you know not terribly scathed on the other side of this epidemic and that may still be premature um, I, I certainly feel it on the streets here how how comfortable people seem to be um, being out and about, you know, mostly wearing masks, but occasionally taking them off to, you know, drink coffee or chat or whatnot. So, um, yeah, there, there weren't that many voices of concern. And the voters that I spoke to on the day of at the polls, none of them seemed terribly worried or, or concerned. I think there's um, a degree of confidence that the government has an idea of where the infections are and are doing things to keep them separated from the general public. And that degree of confidence is, um, is pretty remarkable here. Seems like the measures that you're describing here, which is like a piece of, you know, I saw some of the photos of it. It was like, there's a piece of tape on the ground, you know, that says, uh, and, and they are like, they weren't really that far apart from one <laughs> another and like a bottle of hand sanitizer and wearing a mask. Like that is not that intense. You know, it's not like having every single person wearing like a hazmat suit and going up to another person in a hazmat suit and like, you know, like raising their right or left hand to, 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 to decide who to vote for. Um, how, like, uh, I don't know, like, I mean, we're, is, is that is that generally the type of precautions that are taken right now in, in, in Korea? Like, I guess, like, it just seems sort of lax to me. Um, it, and something that if we did hear that people would go absolutely crazy. And that was the thing about South Korea. Um, I, a lot of people have been asking me, oh, when, when is South Korea, going, Korea going, feel, going to feel comfortable about reopening? And the thing is, it never really dramatically shut down. The only thing that's um, mm. absolutely shut down is the schools. Um, other than that, uh, restaurants never really had to close. Um, churches were being asked to not hold their services, but like most offices stayed open. Some of them did telecommuting, but not all of them. Um, and it wasn't mandated the way that it was in the U.S. So it doesn't feel like a very dramatic unwinding because it was never wound up in the first place. Um, those types of uh, dramatic things didn't really happen here. So there seems to be less clean of a break of like we we went into shelter in place. So now we're going to undo it. It's sort of been uh, we're being more careful. Um, and that's definitely gotten 
dramatically laxer. Um, and, you know, and because of a, you know, it'll still be a couple of weeks before we know fully what the events of this week will lead to from a coronavirus perspective. Victoria, I'm wondering, um, is the main mainstream interpretation of the election results that this was uh, a referendum on the Moon administration's treatment of the of the epidemic, uh, basically a giant stamp of approval? Is there a sense that before the pandemic broke out that they might the party might not win uh, as convincingly as they did? I think that's pretty apparent. It, just looking at the polling numbers for President Moon, um, it very dramatically upticked um, during the coronavirus response. And if you some of the early po- polling numbers um, from several weeks ago, um, it would say that the people supportive of the Moon administration, um, the majority of them were supporting him because of the coronavirus response. But then the opposition, the majority of them were, uh, most of them were also opposing him because of his coronavirus response. And that was, that was earlier on when uh, it was pretty con- controversial that the government here didn't immediately close, didn't close borders to China um, and didn't take uh, dramatic measures. Um, so there's, there have been some conservatives here who have also been, you know, trying to call it the Wuhan virus and stuff like that. Um and that that was a gamble, and it was controversial. South Korea very much tried to um, hew to the WHO recommendation of, you know, closing borders um, doesn't solve it, and it breeds a sense of false complacency. Um, but as as it got closer to the election, and it became pretty apparent that South South, South Korea had a handle on things um, from the opposition, the coronavirus just sort of disappeared as a factor. I went to one rally of a um, of a leading conservative candidate, um, and he he was introduced by a fellow candidate, and he gave a speech. It was probably about thirty minutes in all, and they didn't mention the coronavirus once. Um, and that was pretty. Uh, um, it was wow. pretty apparent. Yeah, starting to ignore it. <laughs> that sounds so. That sounds like almost an impossible thing to imagine here. You know, um, right now, like I, 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 I could we even get a, a year in the future in the United States without having it be the only <laughs> yeah, conversation. So do you think? Well, I think that was probably, I think that was probably pretty um, deliberate that they don't want to, the opposition didn't want to talk about the coronavirus because that's only going to be helping. Um, yeah. The flip government. side of that is, is the democratic party, right. are they kind of banging their chest over their treatment of, of the, over the success of their response? Are they kind of advertising vote for us because of, what a good job we did um, politicizing it like that. No doubt, no doubt. Um, especially <laughs> South Korea has this echo chamber. Being a small country and being a very, I guess, in some ways, export-oriented country, Korea cares a lot about what the rest of the world thinks of Korea. So all this <laughs> foreign press um, about South Korea has sort of been translated in the Korean media and there have been all these articles and also, you know, um, pushes from the government at saying, look at what the world is saying about how well South Korea is doing. Um, and and the, yeah. uh, the current government has definitely made a push of getting that message out to the Korean electorate saying um, we are doing well. And the proof of that is all this foreign press saying we are doing well. So Victoria, so Victoria, President Moon is with the Democratic Party, kind of liberal, you know, kind of similar to the Democrats here in the U.S., 
liberal slash neoliberal. And, you know, one of the things that he was trying to do earlier on in his term was, you know, broker peace with North Korea, you know, some economic plans that I guess worked sort of halfway. How do you think he's going to use this victory of getting now? It is pretty much a, a, a blank check for for his agenda and uh, what he's been seeking to do. It's almost unprecedented, this type of a... Uh, I, I think it is unprecedented uh, since South Korea's haven't been having um, free elections since the 80s um, to have this type of a, a majority in parliament. Um, uh, I The North Korea policy is a, is a part that is going to continue to require triangulation with the U.S., um, and a, a large part of why yeah. it's been stalled is, is has to do with U.S. North Korea talks, and that's not really having to do with the parliament. Um, economic policies is probably going to be a, a big part of it. Um, his his uh, minimum wage increase was was not very very popular. It was mm-hmm. very um, uh, resisted um, by the opposition, but it, those types of um, yeah. those types of uh, economic measures and and in terms of how to turn around a post-coronavirus economy, which is going to be a, a big um, question for countries all around the world. And I would imagine that with this type of majority, um, he's going to have much more of a control. Yeah, the, uh, the, the question of nationalism is actually something that's, you know, I've been thinking about quite a bit. And look, this is from the uh, perspective of somebody who has lived here in the United States and might have like a, pro- please tell me if my assessment of this is problematic, but, you know, Koreans do like being... Uh, really, you know, and thought of well in the world, right? From everything from uh, archery to golf to <laughs> to, to break dancing, you know, like <laughs> uh, it's like my uh, my dad is always like, uh, you know, if you want to make it a career, you have to like have won some award that will make you know Koreans <laughs> think that they can be proud because you're also Korean, you know. Like what? What is the what, what? Like now that Korea is basically just being like, all right, we won the coronavirus. You know, if there was like an Olympics of, of coronavirus, <laughs> that Korea would be in first, second, and third place. I think, and not that that's true at all, because obviously other countries have handled it very well. But they get all of the credit, especially here in the United States. Like, how, how is that? Has that like like has that? I, it's still very early, but has that sort of fomented into a type of of nationalism around this in, in the country? Um. Certainly among the politicians, it seems that way. And a part of it was probably also that it was in the lead up to the election. There was a lot of, um, you know, it, a lot of look at how how well the rest of the world thinks of us and all the countries asking us for help. All of that has gotten a lot of press here um, and, and has led to um, a, a lot of uh, grandstanding from the government. Um, and, and the thing is, it, for the for the most part, so far at least, it does seem to be deserved that um, it was, you know, the, the response was pretty remarkable. And, and I think one of the things that worked really well here from, from what I've seen appears to have been that, like, despite uh, politicians trying to grandstand and try to co-opt this moment for their agenda, that didn't really interfere with the disease response, like the um, the regime that was the disease res- response system that was in place since the 2015 MERS outbreak, uh, or after the 2015 MERS outbreak, sort of just um, kicked into high gear and continued to run smoothly despite what any politician wanted to say or 
um, tried to uh, talk about in regards to the coronavirus. Um, so the professionals were the ones giving the briefings. The professionals were the ones uh, making the important decisions. Um, so yeah, so I'm I'm curious more about this kind of soft power question or nationalism question. Here in the U.S., we tend to kind of group all these East Asian countries together as they all collectively did this great job. And you know, China is obviously more debatable. Um, I'm curious, what is the perception in Korea about the other <laughs> Asian countries, societies, governments? Is there a sense of like regional pride, like all of us did a great job, or is there still sort of this jockeying between like we did the better job and, you know, like Hong Kong and Taiwan didn't do as good a job? And you also mentioned earlier that the conservatives were um, kind of trying to call it the Wuhan virus, right? What is the average, you know, the, the so-called average Korean on the street, what do they think about China um, and the Chinese response or the, the so-called Chinese, the, the, the Chinese origins, right, of this virus? So in the first days of the outbreak here, it was very much, um, there, there was definitely a xenophobic response. There, some of the restaurants here had signs saying no Chinese. Um, and there, uh, there was a petition to the South Korean president asking that entry, all, entry of all um, travelers from China be um, banned. And it gathered, I think, upwards of a million signatures. Um, so there, was a, there, were, there were huge calls for it. And, and it was um, uh, a risky gamble for the government to, to keep that open. And, and a large part of that is because South, uh, China is by far South Korea's most important trading partner. Um, it cannot afford to upset China. Um, and that's that's just been the reality of South Korea probably throughout its history, but particularly um, in, in recent years as well. Um, in terms of how South Korea views other Asian nations and their response to coronavirus, I, I don't think there's much of a sense of thinking of Asia, East Asia or Asia as a block. Um, I don't think there's been much attention to response elsewhere because like elsewhere in the world, a lot of the attention recently has been on the U.S. and Europe and how dramatic this the situation change there has been. Um, and a lot of yeah. a lot of um, many of the new cases, I think half in recent days um, that are of new coronavirus cases are coming from the U.S. and Europe. And if you look at the breakdown of um, overseas arrivals bringing in the coronavirus, the vast majority of, of them are from the U.S. and Europe, and China is actually a very small number. <laughs> yeah. um, and that has also, you know, uh, triggered some class, uh, oh, class no. anger. <laughs> it was, well, yeah, especially towards, <laughs> um, especially towards what's known here as yuhaxing, so it's study abroad kids, kids who go to the U.S. <laughs> or Europe and pay the very dramatically much more expensive education uh, tuition to opt for those um, educational systems. All of a sudden, now that things are not looking good, they're coming ca crawling back to South Korea and making it worse for us. So <laughs> there, there's been that type of a of a response as well. There's a lot of interest on Japan because Korea is always interested. Yeah, of course. In, that was, in Japan. That was my next question. Like, are they are they sort of doing a quiet laughing at Japan now that Japan's situation <laughs> seems to be getting a little out of control. I'm not saying you are. I'm not saying you is, are, but, but okay, it's not very quiet. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, certainly yeah, if, you, if you read the media headlines, yes, there's a degree of gloating going on, um, and that's, that's, that's always going to be the case. 
Um, yeah, but, in my you head, know, a lot I of... picture it like uh, they have like a, you know, here in the United States, they have a constant ticker of the number of cases in the United States. And in my head in Korea, they have like a ticker of Japan and all the cases going, going, going up. It's a competition. It's always a competition. Um, but also, you know, like a lot of Koreans travel to Japan and vice versa. There are a lot of Koreans living in, in, in Japan. So they, they, it is a very um, closely linked situation. It's a- Victoria, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about the reduction of the voting age um, in this election, which I understand was new. And also what is on young people's minds? Something I've read a lot in the Korean media has been around a sex scandal on the messaging app Telegram. Maybe you could say a little bit about that and, and um, what other issues young people have been paying attention to. So one of the um, exciting new things that was happening this election was there was a, a party formed of by young feminists sort of for young feminists, it's, it was called the Women's Party, um, and they did not end up getting enough votes to um, make it into parliament. But it, it it got a lot of attention, and it got a lot of um, it gained gathered a lot of steam. Um, and a part of that has been that in in recent years, since 2016, there's been a, a lot of energy um, behind uh, South Korea's nascent feminist movement. Um, and recently, uh, the um, this Telegram sex chat room scandal where um, uh, very, very young males, um, men in their uh, teens and 20s, seem to have been running these sort of underground rings of um, videos that they extracted from young girls by blackmailing them and then uh, selling them to other men on, on Telegram um, for for subscription fees and and sort of boasting that they would never get caught because it was te- it was on Telegram and that it was on um, servers that were sort of unreachable by South Korean authorities, um, and that's that's been uh, you know it's gotten a lot of attention in South Korea and anything breaking through the noise in, in the coronavirus situation seems um, unthinkable but this this really mm-hmm. was the yeah. the thing that was top of mind for a lot of people in South Korea, especially women, um, and especially young women. Um, so that's been uh, an ongoing issue, misogyny, sexism, um, violence against women, exploitation of women. Um, that's been ongoing uh, for the past few years. And, there was, and last year, there was a scan that, that also um, involved the K-pop world. So it was K-pop and feminism meet where right. um, there were some very popular stars that had been showing to be uh, passing around secretly recorded um, images of explicit images of women and being very cavalier about it and, and talking about it in, in, a, in a rape context and stuff. Um, well, where do you, where do you think these feminist and more like left wing youth strands are going to go electorally now because the minor parties really didn't gain any traction, even though they were potentially going to in this election. So are they going to just be putting pressure on Moon's party? Do you think there are any social gains that people who are a little bit more, you know, quote unquote, progressive might win? Um, In terms of how much pressure they can put on the Moon party, I don't know if if the the type of majority that they have means that they don't have to be as as cognizant of um, smaller voices, um, and voices that, you know, uh, 
they may have had to previously listen to to form coalitions or to to um, do things like that. So um, I don't know exactly what it means. There is a very uh, active um, activist community here. Um, they're very vocal on Twitter. <laughs> Young feminists are very vocal on Twitter. Um, and like so, <laughs> yeah. uh, the nth room. A lot of the trying to call attention to the nth room case happened over Twitter. So. Um, and also K-pop fans are very good at that uh, in terms of getting a hashtag to trend. Um, yeah, so worldwide. K-pop fans and young feminists are, um, are, are taking <laughs> to Twitter to try to get attention on their case. But in, in, until the next election, I don't know what that means electorally or if, if mm-hmm. they, their voices are really going to be reflected in South Korean government as it exists. A lot of people were also pointing out after the election that, um, yes, it's a... Uh, yeah, it, it's a resounding victory for this um, liberal party in it. But if you look at the the elected, they all look the same. There aren't, still aren't that many women. They're, they've all gone to yeah. um, a certain caliber of schools here. Um, and that, that number of um, respected schools is much smaller here. Um, and they're of a certain demographic and mostly male. So. Um, okay, the last mm-hmm. question, and this is like the million-dollar question, and I think it's the one that our <laughs> listeners will want to know the most, is, um, you know, you covered the midterm elections in 2018 here in the United States, and now you've collect, uh, covered this election in Korea. Um, these measures that came out, you know, some of which did seem somewhat mild, like hand sanitizer, standing three par- feet apart, doing a little bit of uh, extended early voting, ma- uh, you know, opening way more polling stations. Like, do, do you think that these are things that can happen here in the United States? See, the thing is, despite the the measures that were taken on day of, um, I think a lot of it is what, what was happening before then, how comfortable people felt about South Korea's dis- disease response and that um, everybody had an idea of where the outbreaks were and that they were being separated. So... You know, the the hand sanitizer sure was somewhat assuring, but I don't think that's the reason people came out to vote. Um, I I think (laughs) the I think it would just you you would just need to be in a place where you feel comfortable going out, period. And then um, and and then, you know, the turnout will be there. So I don't think it was really the day of measures. I think it was a lot in the lead (laughs) up to um, to the elections. Yeah, it's, uh, I I get... Jay, I feel like you're underselling what happened. What do you mean? My my response was the opposite of yours. You were like, oh, they just have some gloves and hand sanitizer. And I was like, damn, they have hand sanitizer? (laughs) (laughs) You don't have any... They're better... The voters are better equipped than our nurses are. (laughs) 